0: there's a prominent British national newspaper called The Times. And in the early 1900s, The Times sent a question to many of the prominent authors of that day. They asked these authors, what's wrong with the world today? And these authors sent back various responses, long essays talking about Socioeconomic conditions and geopolitical conflicts and what's wrong with schools and what's wrong with this generation and what's wrong with work conditions and all these things. One of the authors who was asked for their opinion was a man named G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Chesterton was a very famous writer, public intellectual, philosopher, and a Christian as well. And G.K. Chesterton famously sent back a one Sentence essay. So when asked, what's wrong with the world today? He said this, dear sir, I am yours, GK Chesterton. What's wrong with the world today? I am. Now, did he really mean that he really was the biggest problem in the world? Was he saying that he was an authoritarian dictator? No, that's, that's not what he meant. There's a lot you can actually pull from just this one sentence. It's kind of a trademark of Chesterton. But what he said was this, what's wrong with the world is the nature of himself, perhaps the nature of humanity, that he himself is a broken person in need of God's mercy and grace. He's in need of being put back in right relationship with God himself. That's what's wrong with the world, broken humanity. And this, this is a very bold answer that he gave. I think I would kind of agree with it because he listed, stick with me, his internal brokenness as higher up on the list of problems than all of the external brokenness in the world. It's a bold thing to say, but humor me. We can imagine a world where every single external problem is solved, yet we internally are still broken. We can imagine that. We can imagine fixing all the external problems and that's not fixing our internal ones. However, if we could imagine as well, our internal problems being fixed, our internal brokenness being solved, perhaps that would actually lead to some progress in solving some of the external problems in the world. Food for thought, just consider the following. Now, what if you and I went out on the street in wherever you are, Toronto, we're watching from somewhere else, and we asked 50 different people, on the street the same question. What if we ask them, what's wrong with the world today? We would get many different issues. Perhaps people that lean politically one way would say, well, the problem is those people. And if we asked these people, what's wrong with the world, they would say, ah, it's those people over there. Or maybe we would talk about wars or poverty or perhaps what's happening with the environment or how certain people groups are being treated, or maybe the state of the economy, the erosion of of the working class, the distribution of wealth. Maybe these would also be given as many different problems today. You would probably get 50 different answers. That's my proposal. However, interestingly enough, I submit to you that if you asked this question, what's wrong with the world today, to the people of Israel at the time of Paul writing the book of Romans, If you asked 50 different people there, I think you would get the same answer 50 different times. I think they would say this, what's wrong with the world today? They would say what's wrong with the world today is their separation from God. That was the biggest thing, pushing on their lives, their separation from God, their inability to keep the law, their unfaithfulness to the covenant, their exile from the promised land. In other words, Their answer would be similar to the spirit of what G.K. Chesterton would say thousands of years later. So for Israel, there was consensus on what the problem was. Many people in their time were trying to figure out what the solution would be. How would they be put back into right standing with God? We're not in right standing with God. What will fix this? But we today wrestle with the diagnosis. What is the main problem? They wrestled with the prognosis. How will this problem be solved? We're out of right relationship with God. What must we do for this to be restored? And if you agree with them, you know, how do I fix myself? How are we to be all that we should be, to be in right standing with God? If it's not your ability to follow all the rules and keep the law perfectly, if Christ is the end of the law, kind of like we saw last week, what do you do? We're going to be exploring that today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 13. Last week, we were looking at Paul's explanation of why some of his kinsmen, some people of Israel, why they stumbled over Jesus. Why people got tripped up on what God was doing through the Messiah. Just as Isaiah predicted. He said, Isaiah Isaiah prophesied that God was going to lay a stone, his son, in the midst of all of his people. And for people who were there, this stone, Jesus, would either be their cornerstone or their stumbling stone. And for those who did stumble, for those who got tripped up on what God was doing through Jesus, why? Why did they do this? And he gave three reasons. The first reason of this explanation, Paul was saying, was that his people in Israel who rejected Jesus have zeal without knowledge. They've got the passion, they've got the energy, they've got the motivation and momentum, but it's pointed in the wrong direction. And why do they have zeal without knowledge? The second point was that they are ignorant of God's righteousness. And this just is God's righteousness being Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. God's righteousness means God's faithfulness to his covenant. And God being faithful to the covenant is the provision of the Messiah. So if you're ignorant of God's righteousness, that means unaccepting of the person of Jesus himself. So the first reason was zeal without knowledge. The second reason was ignorance of God's righteousness. And the third reason was just simply that Jesus is the end of the law. That he is what the law is pointing to. He completes the law. He, uh, what do I say? What did we say last week? He accomplishes it. He realizes it. And in realizing it, in being the end of the law, the, the finish line, the goal that it's pointing to, he also completes the law as being a tool which is used to secure right standing with God. He also accomplishes that and he fulfills it and he completes it. So he doesn't get rid of it, but he fulfills it. So that's what we saw, chapter 10, verse 4. It brings us right to this line, for Christ is the end of the law. So we're going to continue on in verse 5. And verse 5 starts as a continuation of verse 4. In the Greek, it's the same thought. Christ is the end of the law. Let's jump right into verse 5. Christ is the end of the law, for, when you see the word for, this means because, because Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does, that does the commandments shall live by them. So this is a quotation, a reference that's being taken from Leviticus 18 verse five, "You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules." If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This verse in Leviticus 18.5 that Paul is referencing here with this phrase, it is shorthand for the whole law, all of it, period. The life that the law is calling for. The law itself was said to be a source of life. And using the phrase life, it's synonymous for life with God. If sin is death, death, separation from God, then Honoring the law, living in this right way, communion with God is life itself. Life and death were synonymous with obedience and unfaithfulness and relationship with God. Okay, these verses we're going to be studying today are peppered, absolutely jam-packed with references to parts of the Old Testament, allusions, lots of shorthand. And these were taken for granted with Paul's audience today. He could just say a few words and people would know exactly what he was talking about in the greater context of it all. We do this today too. Watch, I'm gonna say something. You're gonna, go, you're gonna know what to do next. Here we go, ready? <sighs> Sweet Caroline. You, you didn't have to think about it. You got muscle memory. You've been cued for years what to do there. Correct, right? Uh, you know what's happening there and you know what to do next. You know the shorthand for it. It's kind of like also, if you wanna watch those Marvel movies, uh, if you're watching this one, you need to have seen these other movies because there's references and shorthand and characters and phrases that pop up and so it's kind of built into it. This is kind of what's happening today. Here's something fun. About a month ago, maybe a month ago, um, there's that new show, The Book of Boba Fett. And I started, I started to watch it with my wife. And we're like five minutes in. And she says, who's that? I said, you're talking about, girl? That's Boba Fett. Okay, cool, cool. <clears throat> What's that? That's an alien. Oh, okay, okay, I got that. And, and where are they? And, and I asked her, do you even know what this is? And she said, no, I've never seen any of this before. It turns out she'd never seen Star Wars. And so we're trying to watch a TV show based upon the movies. And so we're like three steps removed. So we had to go right back to the beginning. We watched all of the Star Wars, not the new ones. I shielded her from that. We just finished watching the Mandalorian and now we're ready to keep going. Anyways, so this is what's happening today. There are cross-references to other parts. And you could think, why is he doing all this? This seems so unnecessary. This is how he's going to make a very layered, intricate argument using shorthand that his people will understand. Okay, so stick with me. If we have this perspective, you'll see the richness that can be revealed by peeling back layers they would have gotten at the time. Needless to say, Leviticus 18.5 was the essence of the law. That's all you need to know for now. The law as a source of life before God was not disputed. This was accepted. You can see Jesus talking with an expert in the law about this. An expert of the law comes up to Jesus and asks him, what must he do to obtain life, eternal life, right standing with God? Jesus quizzes him on his understanding of the law, and he responds with passages from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. Let me me read you this interaction. Luke 10. live. And that is in connection with this, the doing and the living. Whoever does this will live. That's also kind of where the problem is, because we can't do it. But it's important to understand this relationship between Israel and the law. Today, contemporary evangelicals, maybe we just think Jesus showed up in the Middle East, uh, he just appeared on Christmas, 30 years later, died, and he goes into heaven, and that's it. But that's not Uh, It's it's true, but it's incomplete because God is timeless and eternal, but he always meets us in our place and in our time. And so when Jesus came, he was interacting with the whole history of God's relationship with Israel. And a major part of that is their interaction with the law. So let's put this very, very simply because this seems foreign to us. But if we don't get our head around this, It's like trying to watch the 10th movie in the series if you haven't seen the first one. Sinclair Ferguson, in his fantastic book, The Whole Christ, he puts it like this. Love is what law commands. And the commands are what love fulfills. We are commanded to love God and to love others. And when we fulfill the law, we are doing this acting out of our love for God himself. So in the economy of the old covenant, the law was seen as holy and righteous and as good it was a source of life so when we see the law this list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots god isn't laying all these out cuz he likes to be bossy but he's telling people how ought we live to be in right relationship with him to be in right relationship with others to be in right relationship with ourselves with the broader created world there's a billion dollar industry to helping people improve themselves. People spend a fortune on coaches and consultants. We care a lot about getting wise counsel. So the giving of the law was an act of God's grace. Here's the problem. The problem was we can't keep it. We can't act out as we ought to. The law was meant to give life, but we could not keep it. It was supposed to be a means of acquiring life, but we could not acquire it. So let's keep reading. This is the relationship between God and his people and the way they ought to act. We can't do it. So, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up, From the dead. Let's keep reading. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, what Paul is doing here is quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's quoting this word for word, and in brackets, he's adding his own commentary. When you see little phrases with those brackets there, this is Paul commenting on Deuteronomy 30. This is another reference to a part in the Old Testament that everyone would know. In genres, different genres of music, different artists will perform variations on a certain theme or melody or a classic song. If you wanna see the talent and artistic ingenuity of a cello player, then they would play box cello suites. Or in jazz, one of my favorite songs is I Fall In Love Too Easily. I fall in love too easily not a jazz singer, but I love listening to different versions by Chet Baker or Miles Davis or Frank Sinatra, so on and so forth. We like seeing covers and variations or different takes on a theme or a concept. There's been four different, five different Spider-Man movies in the last 10 years, two months, I don't know. Or even in our time, we see like seeing different intellectuals taking a crack at perennial problems. This is what Paul is doing in the present. So this is how we're going to unpack this pretty dense piece of theology going on. The main tune of this passage is Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's a passage that's full of life and full of promise. Many people of Israel, many of the Jews in Paul's day, were hoping to figure out what God was going to do for them after all of these years of oppression and suffering at the hands of foreign nations, of their enemies. If you asked 50 different Israelites what's wrong with the world today, they would all give you the same answer. But they were kind of disagreeing on or trying to figure out how God was going to restore them. We all know that God is going to. This is what Deuteronomy 30 is talking about. But how is he going to do it? And many people tried to give different answers to this. You can look at the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are different documents, uh, kind of around the time of Paul, 200 years before Christ, 400 years after. And in the Apocrypha, there's authors who say, it might be this, it might be this. If you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's documents where people are giving different interpretations of Deuteronomy 30 as well. Today, Paul is giving the final, definitive understanding of the relationship between God and his promises to restore his people. So let's break that down. Let's do this quickly. Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 come at the end of the final book of the Torah, the Pentateuch. There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the last book. This is some of the last chapters of the last book. This is Moses giving his final charge, his great last speech, if you will, to the Israelites before they entered into the promised land, before they're going in. And these chapters tell a story of what's gonna happen to Israel in the days to come. If they obey God's commandments, if they're faithful to their covenant with him, God's promises are of blessing. God promises to bless them. However, if they are unfaithful, if they turn from their covenant, he also warns of curses to come. Uh, one of them, the worst of them, is exile, being sent out from their promised land. And to make this worse, Moses gives the prediction that Israel will be unfaithful and they will be cast out into exile. That's what chapters 28 and 29 are all about. But Deuteronomy chapter 30 offers a fresh promise of hope and of restoration to which God commits himself. While in exile, they wander and suffer and are oppressed. And Israel might think everything is over for them, but God promises that even after all of their unfaithfulness, all of their turning, all of their inability to keep God's law and their promises in the midst of all this, even as they've been cast out, God promises that if they turn back to him, even while in exile, God will rescue them. Moreover, even on top of that, he promises to reform his people so that they can be in right standing with him, keeping the law as he always intended. Even when they're unfaithful again and again and cast out, God offers this invitation of mercy, reconciliation, and redemption. It's beautiful, beautiful passage. So the opening portion of Deuteronomy 30, it lays out these options, this promise of restoration if they return to God. Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 and 14 lay this out. The whole chapter is beautiful. I'd encourage you to read it. Uh, Chapter 11, 14. For this commandment that I command to you today is not too hard for you, Neither is it too far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea so that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, Israel at the time when Paul was writing this, They were in the Deuteronomy 29 curses. They were in exile. They were under Roman rule and reign. But they believed that Deuteronomy 30, the redemption was close at hand. And as I said, various authors and thinkers were trying to crack this riddle, figure out what it meant. So let's summarize what Paul has put before us so far in these verses. Leviticus 18.5 summarizes the essence of the law And how God's people were supposed to live in doing these things. In Deuteronomy 30, we have Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 is the essence of God's redeeming love. So we have law and we have love right in front of us. Paul is putting them both here. Law and love always exist inside of the covenant. Now, for the final part, this is the pivot. Paul is going to show how Jesus is the Deuteronomy 30 promise you don't have to go up to heaven. you don't have to ascend to look from some message from God. And Paul says in the brackets, to go up into heaven, Jesus came down to us, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, nor do you have to go, across the sea. The sea is kind of synonymous with the abyss, with uh, the land of the dead. You don't have to go to there because Jesus has come up from the grave. That's Easter. He's saying Christ came and Christ rose. You don't have to go searching. You don't have to go look for these things. Why? It's here. Let's read verses 9 to 12. This is the pivot. Because you don't have to go searching for all this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a powerful, beautiful explanation of the gospel. How all these things are weaved together these Old Testament statements and promises and how Jesus comes in and fulfills them all. When I was reading all this, I was trying to keep it all straight in my head because there are a lot of moving pieces. This is kind of how I conceptualized it. It's not a mathematical equation. This is just how it makes sense in my head. Verse five is the summary of the essence of the law. And then verses six, seven, and eight, this is kind of the shorthand of Deuteronomy 30. This is about the promise of what God is going to do. The law and the promise... These lead to verse 9, and verse 9 is the new covenant link. So 5, 6, 7, and 8 are linked by verse 9, and verse 10 explains what this faith is from verse 9. So verse 10 explains verse 9, and then 11, 12, and 13 expand on verse 10. So this chunk is linked by this verse, 10 explains 9, 11, 12, and 13 explain 10. I hope that makes things clearer and not more confusing. But this is this grand argument, this final statement that Paul is offering us here. You don't go up to heaven. The Messiah has come down. You don't need to go down into the abyss to search for it. He already rose from there. The promises of the undoing of exile, the reconciliation with God himself has come true in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. He is God's fresh gift of grace, and that is good news. So this is why Paul can take Deuteronomy 30, where it's talking about God's revealed word. He's taking this, and he's plugging Jesus into the gaps. That's what he's doing in these brackets, saying, look, God's final And definitive revelation, his revealed word, the logos, which Jesus is called in John chapter 1, this word is Jesus. This is how now Paul can interpret Deuteronomy 30 through Jesus. And to tighten that connection, as if this wasn't intricate enough, Paul is also quoting from Isaiah 28. Again, that's the passage about the cornerstone, that those who trust in him will not be put to shame. He's also quoting from Joel chapter 2. I don't know if we'll get into that because we're going deep enough. But not put to shame, as it says here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This shame, this is from the Isaiah portion. This is talking about the stone, the cornerstone. This should also sound familiar to Romans 1.16. Sorry, I'm I'm going deep in the matrix right now. Let's come up for breath. <laughs> He's saying, will not be put to shame. And this doesn't just mean public public embarrassment, but this is talking about When the time comes, when we meet God on the day of judgment, we can be confident that we will be in right standing with him, that we will receive life, full life, life to the full, everlasting life, which is also what he talked about in Leviticus. You see how tight this is all getting here. Paul has expounded on essentially an Old Testament doctrine of salvation. He has taken it, Shown this variation, this true fulfillment of it, this problem they were all trying to solve and showing them that it is fulfilled in Jesus. Israel is longing for salvation and God has provided it. And now Paul urges people of every race, Jew and Greek, those who were God's people and those who were said not to be God's people, those who were near and those who were far. He's urging them all to discover the risen Jesus as their Lord, as their Messiah, So why does this matter? All of this tight linguistic arguments and theological things happening here. Why does this matter? If you remember the start of chapter 10, Paul gave this grand prayer that his kinsmen, that the people of Israel could come to know Jesus. He's interceding for them. And he's showing the answer to this prayer, that people could come to know God, that his people could be in right standing with him. And the answer to his prayer, it's twofold. There's the two conditions. One, that God has made his salvation clear and God has brought it near. He's made it clear and he's brought it near. He's saying, look, you don't have to go high. You don't have to go low. You don't have to go on these grand quests to find all these things. Jesus has come. The search is over. And you don't need to be able to keep all these Old Testament laws and the rites and the rituals that we keep failing and falling and messing up and suffering the consequences. You don't have to know that. The plan of salvation is now this. Jesus who came, who embodied and lived out the perfect life, who completed the law. Paul is saying that God's plan for salvation is clear and it's near and it's this. So maybe you're joining today. And this is your first time hearing all of this. Maybe your friend said, come over for breakfast. And you walked in, they put this on the TV and gave you a piece of toast. Welcome, glad you're here, by the way. What do you say to all of this? This solution to what's wrong with the world today, the solution to what's wrong with us, this source of reconciliation with God himself, that you don't have to go searching for it. You don't have to look high or low. You don't have to try and live out your life as being the perfect person who doesn't make mistakes, working hard, building the perfect life, the amazing career, the jam-packed social schedule. Are you exhausted by the demands of the modern life? Do you feel like it's kind of too much for any one person to do? Are you disillusioned with trying to fix yourself? I want to show you what Jesus says in Matthew 11:28 28 to 30. This is good news for the weary soul. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a call here from Jesus to the believer and to the non-believer. God's grace calls to us all, to the rich and to the poor, to all races, to all peoples, to the high and the low, the educated and the humble, the sophisticated, the agnostic, the atheist, or the apathetic amongst us, to the person who has kept all the rules, to the person who has broken all the rules, to the person who is proud of what they've become, and to the person who is ashamed of what they've become. Your task is not to try and earn right standing with God or to try and maintain right standing with God, worrying that if you forget to pray one day, you're cut, you're in the bad books now. Because of what Jesus has done in completing the law, you now can be put in right standing with God. Your task now that you are in relationship with him is to enjoy it. That's a very different kind of work. Uh, In relationships, relationships take effort. You know this, friendships, family relationships. Marriage is also a covenant and marriage takes work as well. But for those of you who are married, you know this, once you are married, your work every day isn't to re-earn your marital status. I don't have to wake up every day and think, okay, I need to to do this and do this and do this. And I can guarantee that I'm still going to be married today. And maybe, you know, some of that can actually cross over. Some brownie points will spill over to tomorrow and I'll still be married. That's not it. My effort, my work, my responsibility now is to enjoy this covenant that I'm in. It's to thrive in it. That's still work, but it's a different kind of work. I'm not trying to re-earn my marriage with my wife. What does she want from me? She wants to hold my hand. She wants me to spend time with her, to tell her about how my day is. She wants me to cook steak and watch Star Wars with her. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the way that you glorify God is by enjoying him. God is not glorified where he's not seen as all great, all satisfying, and all valuable. That is an easy burden. We don't have to worry about searching for this or earning this. Jesus says, I have earned it. And if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, not me, but I trust in him, his perfection his righteousness. Now I can be put in this right standing with God and I can enjoy this life now. The gift is life. You are put in it. So when we encourage you at church to do these things, when we encourage you to pray, to join our prayer challenge, when we encourage you to serve on a serve team, when we enjoy, uh, enjoy, encourage you to serve a life group, We're not telling you to do these things so you'll earn more brownie points with God. We're encouraging you to do these things that are part of this life, this new life, this good life that we have received. So who needs to be reminded of this today? Last week, uh, we were reminded of the fact that for most of us, we either need to be comforted or challenged. Christ comes to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable So maybe you are slaving away and beating yourself up, feeling like you need to do these things or God won't be happy with you, that you need to earn this right standing with him. Can I invite you to the life that Jesus offers you, this life of relationship, this life of rest. God's not sitting around waiting for you to get your act together, but he actually enjoys you. Now, here, you have this available. So that's for the person who thinks they need to do more, who's slaving away, trying to do too much. And then maybe the challenge is for some of us over here who think that, uh, okay, the Christian life is saying the sinner's prayer and then I just kind of get to go to heaven. I get get out of jail free card. Can I also perhaps challenge you and encourage you and remind you of this fact That because of Christ's completion of the law, we are now able and called into and free and able and empowered to live this life. The Christian life isn't just thinking the right thought, checking off the box, and then going back and acting like atheists for the other six days of the week. We are called into the fullness of this life. And I would encourage you to pursue this, this great gift this great relationship that is available to us, that God has more for you than just thinking a nice thought and saying that you're a Christian. There's so much more to the Christian life than that. So, may, may I encourage you and challenge you to also lean into the rest in the life that Jesus brings for us today. Both people need to be encouraged and called into this life that Jesus has secured for us and that is available for us this very day.